This is Innovating a Bright Future. Welcome back to the show. Once again, I'm your host, Avery Kreibold, with Innovating a Bright Future. This is the show where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technology driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. In this episode, I talk to Olaniyi Oyeniyi, a master's student originally from Nigeria, about sustainable development, a particularly pressing issue right now. Sustainable development basically means advancing a nation's economic, social, and governmental systems by developing infrastructure, like I talked about with Nick LeBlanc earlier, in a way that conserves resources of all kinds. In other words, it means making progress in some form or another in a way that can be continued without ever running out of necessary resources through overuse or exploitation. This is especially important right now, as less developed countries have more opportunities available to them to ensure that they pursue sustainable methods, but we must make sure that those methods are always viable for them as well. Olani has a bit of an accent, so I tried to jump in where it's hard to hear what he's saying. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the show. Olaniyi Oyeniyi? Yes, thank you. <laughs> Is that close? Yeah, you got it. You got it. You can just call me Ni, by the way. You are a master's student. You're working in mostly alternative fuel resources in Berlin. You have a master's degree in energy environmental processes. You've been working on bringing sustainable, renewable energy resources to energy-impoverished countries like Nigeria and places like that. For almost six years, I've had this um, crazy desire, like, okay, is, is it really feasible that uh, my country, Nigeria, can go 24 hours uh, throughout the year without like blackouts, without power outages? And that desire, that hope. Assuming over the years to work in different companies and um, to take on different projects. and He says it led him to work in different companies. That's just how he says companies, and he will say it more throughout the interview, so just keep it in mind. It was in fact um, one of the um, key factors in me coming to Germany because I, was, I, I began to read so much about energy systems around the world and I saw how perfect Europe was when it comes to the energy system and the renewables, um, how it has scaled up. And I was like, okay, I have to come here. And uh, it has really been a wonderful journey for me, um, learning more. I mean, what I knew before I came um, to Germany and what I knew right now, it's really mind-blowing and um, there's still more to learn. I'm still much an energy enthusiast. And now I'm beginning to see how everything comes into play. There can't be much sustainable development without um, energy boost in many of these developing countries, so yes. You called yourself an energy enthusiast. I'm curious what that means for you. I mean, in this modern world, almost of the facilities or almost of the amenities that we have, they require electricity. I mean, basic healthcare requires electricity. In the old days, you would have said, okay, I'm going to dry my food. I'm going to go to the mountaintop and cut some ice and preserve my food. 
But right now, I mean, with technology, you could just put your food in the refrigerator. I mean, energy just makes life easier. It improves the standard of living. And that's one key factor because you will notice that ever since electricity became like a big thing in the industrial revolution period, technology was just growing at a, at a really, really massive numbers. I mean, electricity is really key for innovation. And I really see that as one of the factors we require or developing countries require for attaining that developed nation attributes. And you touched on it a little bit. Why is it so important for those developing countries who are moving forward in their economic systems, their civil systems, starting to develop in new ways, kind of in the way that the Industrial Revolution did to the West? Why is energy so important for developing countries? Number one, with all the healthcare service that we have right now, I think I mentioned earlier, you talk about the Human um, Wellbeing Index, and the Human Wellbeing Index um, compares like the standard of living. And for you to, for instance, get to the standard of the required standard of living, the minimum standard of living for these developing countries, for the rural areas, and the areas where you have to walk miles and miles and miles to, to fetch a bucket of water, or the areas where you have to self-generate or self-generate your power, or the areas where electricity is so expensive that you feel it's just for the rich people, or for the areas where children have to have to stay under the lamp or under the candle to read, or the areas where industries, they plummet because of the high cost of energy. You will see that um, it's not just about talking about the nation. It's also talking about the individuals because individuals make up the nation, right? The nation has so much drawbacks in education, in the healthcare sector, in the agriculture, in the industry, in commercial centers, just because of electricity. For instance, I'll give just one short scenario. When I was still in Nigeria, I used to go to a place to cut my hair. There was this guy. I would ask him, how many hairs do you cut? Or how many people's hair do you cut in a day? And he would tell me the amount and um, the number of people. And he would tell me, okay, how much he made. And I would think to myself, okay, how many times do you run your generator? Because in Nigeria, for you to actually cut people's hair, you need the appliances. And these appliances are connected to electricity. How many hours do you run your generator? He runs his generator like eight to nine hours. And he has to buy the fuel. And fuel in Nigeria is quite expensive. He has to buy the generator. He has to buy the fuel. And at the same time, he's still paying for his electricity bills. I mean, it doesn't really make sense because the fact that there's electricity, there's no electricity, it makes life harder for him. He has lower income. And this is just a small-scale businessman. Then when you take it to the big-scale businessman, who spends like, for instance, there was a large company in Nigeria who spends one, um, one to two billion naira, or that's translates to about hundred million dollars, one to two billion naira per year just on generating electricity to ensure that they can function in Nigeria. That's really expensive, and this is one of the reasons why some facilities or some big industries they move away from Nigeria to maybe other countries that um, have much better electricity. I mean, South Africa, South Africa is a big, it's a big, you compare the way South Africa has grown over the years and the way Nigeria has grown over the years, you will see the difference. Electricity is very, very key for developing nations to move forward. 
And it brings those benefits, as you said, to all of those sectors like healthcare, industry, all of those things that we consider necessities are something that depend on energy. And that's why they need it to move forward. It's going to bring up their quality of life and it's going to change how they live their lives and allow for that development where the lack of energy would really be holding them back. So with all that said, we know that energy is vital for economic, social development. Why is energy missing from these countries? Why are developing countries struggling with this? Um, one of the top reasons is uh, conflicts. So in many developing nations, um, conflict is still like a problem. People throw out their anger in different ways. And in, in situations where, for instance, you set up an electricity pool, you set up the key fundamentals for supplying electricity to a community, but you are not sure if that place will always be peaceful. I mean, for instance, in Alberta, imagine if some hoodlums would just come up and just decide to break away all the electricity poles or disconnect everyone from having power. That is one thing when it comes to conflict. I would also say misplaced priorities. So misplaced priorities means that they don't always know where to solve the problem. So for instance, in Nigeria, in 2015, up to now, Nigeria has invested millions and millions and even up to billions of dollars when it comes to solving the problem. But they haven't solved it. It hasn't gotten better. Because most of the times, they are just trying to cover the holes. They're trying to fix, fix, fix one problem or the other. And as you're trying to fix one problem, another problem pops up somewhere else. One thing that they require is they require a goal. I mean, to me, it's common sense. It's like get all the stakeholders together. For instance, in, gener in electricity, you talk about generation, transmission, and distribution. You, t you figure out the lapses in the generation, in the transmission, and in the distribution. You figure out how you can fix this problem together. Lapses in generation, transmission, and distribution. Just another word that was hard to hear, for me at least. Basically, he's saying they need to analyze their systems and decide collectively using a bigger pool of knowledge on what to do next. It's all about looking for where the losses are, trying to cover up the losses, and having like a basic framework. Because if, for instance, Nigeria is to have 24 hours power supply, you will see thousands and thousands of complaints from different nations running to Nigeria because Nigeria is consider us cake for Africa investing. So if you have like a framework, a basic framework to show external investors, I mean, people will pull in, but there is no basic framework. They're just policies which spring up from nowhere. They are never reviewed or something like that. And that's one problem. Another problem is poverty. A friend of mine, I was talking about this with a friend of mine. And one thing he said was technology such as energy is replicable. So you can just go to one country, copy and paste their power system go to another country and install it. The major issue between the different countries is the finances. And that's another thing that many developing countries um, lack. You don't always have that strong when it comes to making huge investment because I'm telling you, just to fix just the transmission of electricity, not just the generation, just to fix the, the transmission, you spend lots and lots of money. Governments are, are not always very competent enough to take those huge risks, and I feel that that's a problem. So if you take that into account and you consider those barriers to energy and economic literacy and competence, I talked about this on another episode about how expensive transmission is. Transmission can often be one of those most expensive parts of the project. 
So what do you think are the solutions to that? More distributed, like say solar and wind resources, maybe small scale hydro, or is it just kind of biting the bullet, getting that transmission out there and just invest in those big projects that are going to be able to sustain the country for a longer period of time, maybe? I would say it's actually both because when you're talking about trying to be radical about electrification, both sides are required. It's like you have a goal and you have two people sprinting. One sprints through one way and the other one sprints through another way. The two of them know where they are going to, right? That's one key thing about electricity in developing nations. We require the two. We require to fix the centralized power and we require to fix the decentralized power. The centralized power in most cases in, in Africa has reached about 55%. Um, 55% of the population have access to the national grid in Africa. In some cases, it's as high as 60 In some cases, as high as 70%. If, for instance, you prefer to go into just decentralized, the work that has been done up to that level, it will be almost discarded. And we are working towards a goal. We're not really working towards who reaches there first. It's about towards getting the goal. It's about the people who are suffering, and that's the goal. So I feel the both scenarios are really key. And also, um, the centralized is mostly governed by the government, and while the, while the decentralized is mostly governed by the private owners, I, I can't really say which is better, because um, as much as decentralized has done much, it hasn't really reached the cap. It hasn't reached the peak of its power in developing nations. So um, I will say the both for now. So what would you say is the most important thing to focus on when we're looking at sustainable development? Which portion of that energy development is the most important thing to focus on, just in general? Rural areas. I mean, it's something to see. It's something to read about it, but it's also something to see. It. I mean, I've been to some rural areas and I saw an elderly woman who was in her 60s and 70s and she was carrying firewood. You know what firewood is? Biomass, wood. I mean, that is for her to have something to cook her food, to sell and stuff like that. And this is something, I mean, this was in 2015. This was in like in a modernized world. And people rely on biomass to cook, which is dangerous, right? I would say the rural areas. Because many of the urban areas, they have this, the financial competence, even though the energy, the power supply is not constant. They have the financial competence to buy themselves generators, to fix themselves up maybe eight hours in a day or 12 hours in a day to have power supply. But these rural areas, they're just, they're just gone. They're just left out. And I would say those guys are the most important. When you try to integrate sustainable development, they have to be included. Because sustainable development is mostly it's to target the weakest. That's one time of sustainable development that I know about is to target the weakest and to ensure that the weakest are not left unheard. So the rural areas are something we need to focus on. We need to make sure they have energy. We need to make sure that they are literate in energy and their finances. They know how to manage money and energy as well as their resources. Do you think maybe that's where decentralized energy comes in and especially microgrids? Take me through what exactly a microgrid is. How does it work? So I would say like in basic terms, just imagine you have a generating company, you have a transmission company, 
and you have a distribution company. So microgrids are basically, they have all these characteristics. They generate your power, they transmit the power within the region or within the community and into the homes of this community. So microgrids, are, in most cases, they operate between like few kilowatts to one megawatt, depending. They are really a key factor to, to saving these um, rural areas. That's what I would say. The basic premise of a microgrid is that it's self-contained, that it doesn't require energy coming in, and usually, in most cases, it doesn't export energy. It keeps the energy it generates there, it transmits it, and it uses it all in one area. And that's where those rural communities come in. We can give them energy that's in their community that they can use immediately, and there's a lot less risk of the energy outages if it's sourced directly in the community. So what are the pieces of a microgrid? You touched on it a little bit, but go a little bit more in depth of what's the energy flow from top to bottom of the basics of a microgrid. Let's talk about the source. So what source could you use? You could use a solar, you could use wind, you could use diesel. In some cases, you could also use a biogas. You have like an engine or you have like a facility that generates your power, be it a, a solar or a wind or a biogas or a diesel or a combination of the two. In some cases, you also have batches integrated into the systems. And once this power is generated, you have like distribution boxes, right? You have, so you have like transmission boxes. In some cases, you would have to step up the power because um, it depends on how big the community is. So you need to step up the power to maybe a few hundred volts, yeah? few hundred volts, maybe be it 330 volts or close to a thousand volts. And after this is done, you would then have like the areas, the regions which will benefit of this power. And this also has to be stepped down to the power that they can have. In some cases, there is no need for step up because the microgrid is very close to the regions that benefited. But I mean, I'm talking about communities which may be large, um, if it's possible that you could have like thousands of people living in that community. In a city, in a town where you just have like five or six people or just 10 households, you just generate your power and you just distribute seats. And it's just basically connected to the appliances. One key thing is that when you're working with solar, you're working with wind, you have DC, right? So this DC has to be converted to AC. But in our own appliances, some of them use DC. And in fact, in many of these developing nations, many of the appliances they use work with DC. And in this case, you could just directly link the power directly to these people. However, there are some cases where AC is used, and then you will need like an inverter to convert to AC. So that's basically it. This is an important piece of renewable energy implementation, using electricity in both AC and DC forms. When solar panels generate power, the electrons that supply power flow in one direction, direct current whereas some wind turbines and fossil fuel plants generate electrons that constantly switch their direction of movement back and forth between moving towards the positive pole and towards the negative pole. If you want to learn more about how these different electricity forms work and what an inverter actually does, listen to episode 5 with Jesse Lane. As I say in just a second here, I didn't know that appliances could occasionally use DC current. I thought it always needed to be run through an inverter first, which can waste energy. That's another way that developing countries especially can reduce the capital and technical requirements of implementing renewable energy, which is, of course, a great thing. So that's an interesting point, and I didn't actually know that before. 
So when you get energy from solar panels and other sources like that, most sources, wind, hydropower, it comes in in DC. And I've talked about this in an earlier episode, direct current. And what I said in that episode was that it needs to be converted to AC, alternating current. And I didn't know at the time that you could use DC for some appliances. So that's an interesting point. Mostly power sources that require turbines, they generate AC, but especially solar. Solar is directly DC. Also, wind turbines, they, they also have the capacity of inverting to AC or DC in, in some cases. But solar is mostly in DC. That's why in future solar homes, it is proposed that the appliances of everybody in that home should work with DC so you don't have to invert to AC since um, you already have DC on top of your roofs like that. And yes, for instance, touches, the light bulbs. I've had a small solar home before where like the light bulb was working on DC, the place to charge was on DC, like basic um, appliances. Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't know that before. We know that these can be used in developing countries, and these are one of the options that is going to be looked into more and more as we further develop the energy systems of these developing countries. They can also be used in other places, and they are already being used in other places, places like universities, small communities, schools, things like that. What are the other applications of microgrids, and how are those going to come into play for the future of both developing and developed countries? There was, I think it happened recently, like a year or two years ago. U.S., it often happens that they have blackouts or in Australia, they have blackouts due to wildfires and due to climate. Um, people call it the acts of God. In those scenarios, there is little you can do in relying on the national grid. And this is where microgrids come in because microgrids, they're like just like backup power systems for developed nations. I mean, there was a time in Australia, I think it happened last year or two years ago, where the electricity price shot up so high because there was a huge blackout and the price of electricity was just going up, going up, going up, that it went almost hundreds of percentage than the normal price. They had to need battery systems. Battery systems are also like microgrids because battery systems, their storage, people just think about microgrid as uh, maybe one diesel engine or one solar engine. But in many cases, energy storage is kind of like a mimic of microgrids for many developed nations. Because it's like a backup power system, which you can always call upon. Um, Germany uses diesel engines in some cases for a region. In Dusseldorf, I was reading about this power plant, and they mentioned if this gas power plant was to fail, they had like a backup power system. And in many cases, microgrids are often the ones called upon for small communities, for specific regions, and microgrids are also key for critical areas. There are some places where power should never be out. Hospitals where they have like backup generators or they have like a, a microgrid connected to few communities and just that hospital or fire stations and areas which are really critical, microgrids are really important there. But in developing nations, microgrids are not really key for these universities or for these critical areas. They're mostly key for rural areas. They can be used for those type of applications in the more developed countries. But what we need to focus on in the developing countries is making sure everyone has energy first before we move on to other things. What do you see for the future of energy? Is this acceleration that we're seeing in electrification, renewable energies, new affordable technology like solar? 
how is that going to change the dynamic between developing and developed countries? Are they going to become closer together? Are they going to work together and collaborate on these projects? Or is it going to drive them even farther apart? I would say it will drive them farther apart because in developed countries, the key factor, the big topic is the quality of the power supply. The quality of the power supply means lower CO2 emissions. You want the electricity using your household to be 100 clean, if possible, 120 clean. But in developing nations, you're not really thinking about the quality of electricity. Your main focus is about the quantity. The quantity is the big problem, not the quality. So that is why I really find it funny when experts talk about developing nations and talk about, oh, let's just flood everywhere with solar, with wind, and with clean energy, and, and we have a perfect scenario. I mean, no. I mean, you have to understand that these nations, they haven't gotten to the positions or, or, or to the status that many of these developed nations have, and they have to grow. You have to give them room to grow. I mean, it's really going to be bad for the environment when you talk about coal or when you talk about just using gas. I mean, you have to give them room to grow. You have to ensure that the first important thing is that the standard of their living grows and gets better before you start thinking about quality of energy. I mean, Germany wasn't thinking about quality of energy when in the Industrial Revolution at that moment. I mean, electricity was electricity. I mean, it was like a fancy stuff. So I, I would say they'll grow apart. I would say they'll grow apart in respect to the different focus of these groups, these different groups. So, yeah. Well, in that case, how do we make sure that that doesn't happen? Or what can developed countries do to make sure that they're including developing countries in this process? I mean, I would say that developed countries, they're really trying their best. I mean, they're trying their best to be inclusive. I mean, for instance, in the Paris Agreement, you had many developing nations attend the Paris Agreement. And many people would question why did developing nations attend the Paris Agreement? It was basically because the Paris Agreement wasn't just about meeting the two degrees Celsius or below the two degrees Celsius by 2050. It was also to ensure that developing nations are assisted in reaching this goal or assisted in mitigating climate change or adapting to climate change. I would say it's the developing nations that are the problem. It's about you deciding to stand up and say, okay, this technology is, is replicable. I can fix this technology with this source of power in maybe in Germany or with this source of power, maybe in the United Kingdom or in the United States of America or in Australia or in Canada. I mean, it's about you getting your priorities right. It's about you creating like a structure, a basic framework. Okay, Nigeria, they, they, they often talk about clean energy, but I find that laughable because before you think about the cleanness of your energy, you have to first think about the access. The access is really, really key. It's them, okay, sitting down on the board and lighting all the bottlenecks and, and saying to themselves, no matter how difficult it's going to be in the next five or six years, we're going to achieve this. For instance, if I need a phone that I can use for take good pictures, I don't need to develop it. So that's the advantage that developing nations have. They have the advantage of just purchasing these technologies and it's for them to say, okay, we're going to fix this problem. Once they get to that place, then I will be wrong that they would go apart because if they find themselves in that position, they would actually go together. They might not be there together in 2050, but they'll be close. I just wanted to do a little summary here because that section was very fast. What Niyi is saying here is that the difference between developed countries pursuing more advanced technologies 
and developing countries who simply want access to energy will make the wealth gaps and differences in perspectives even worse between the two kind of sections between countries. That is true unless developing countries are able to organize themselves and focus on cooperating with developed countries by using expertise and resources that developed countries can supply and kill two birds with one stone by generating electricity for their citizens using renewable sources that have been cooperatively generated using both developed and developing countries' resources. Well, I think that's all of the longer answer questions I have for you. I just have a couple of quick ones that I want you to answer as fast as you can. First one is easy. Nature or the busy city? Busy city. <laughs> Second one, hydrogen or battery storage for energy storage? I would say hydrogen. I love hydrogen, man. <laughs> yeah. Next one is climate mitigation. So that's like reducing emissions, renewable energy, those types of initiatives, or climate adaptation, moving to places that aren't going to be as affected by climate change and other initiatives like that. I would say mitigation <laughs> because I want to stay where I am. Where I am. If we have good mitigation, we would not need adaptation. Yeah, that's my opinion too. We need to focus on the mitigation first. Worry about the adaptation if we have to. That mitigation is what we need to focus on now. The next question is solar power or wind power? I love wind, man. Wind is, yeah, for me. <laughs> you don't hear about wind as much as solar. Solar seems to be hogging the spotlight a little bit. Yeah, I mean, solar is everywhere. I just have this warm spot for solar. I mean, and for wind. Okay, maybe because I feel that in some coastal areas in Nigeria, the wind could be installed, but yeah. But solar is in almost every country. The last question you can take a little bit more time on. Given what you've seen in developing and developed countries, in your work on alternative fuels, on your work on microgrids, do you think that we can decarbonize all of these very centralized power generation and ultimately reduce our emissions to comply with carbon neutrality by 2050. I will join the experts and say we cannot get to carbon neutrality, but we can get close to it. We can get as close as maybe 80% or as close as 75%. Because even if you want to talk about how big um, carbon capture, sequestration and storage will be in the future, I mean, the highest efficiency you can achieve with carbon capture and sequestration is about 70%. It's not really feasible for you to talk about 100%. If you talk about biomass, the use of biomass and carbon capture and storage, the fact that you used a tree today to burn fuel, that same tree was also meant to take CO2 out of the system. If at all you replant that tree, it takes longer for that same seed to germinate and to grow into that big tree that you are just removed. If you think about natural gas, okay, natural gas is quite lower than coal. Yes, it's the future, not really the future, the present few, but I mean, it still emits CO2. I know you may be really hoping for an episode on natural gas because it is steadily becoming more popular. There will soon be an episode that focuses on mostly carbon capture and touches on natural gas a bit. But at some point, maybe in season two, I do want to do an entire episode on natural gas. The only problem I have with natural gas is that it is still a fossil fuel. 
Yes, it is much, much better than coal, but it still requires mining and fracking to get it out, and it is still burned for energy, which inevitably produces CO2. That's definitely not what we want if we're trying to combat climate change. Anyways, I do plan on dealing with natural gas at some point, but I'm not in a big rush because of those reasons. If you think about hydrogen, okay, let's say hydrogen is our, is our savior in the future. Hydrogen mostly is gotten from, from natural gas and in some cases from coal. And for every kilogram of hydrogen you produce from natural gas, you generate 8 kilograms of carbon. And with coal, you generate almost 20. I mean, that's also a problem. You think about electrolysis. What power source would be the key factor to moving electricity? You think about, okay, let's say renewables. Renewables are not always constant. So they are very volatile in nature. So you require a backup system. You, require, you still require nuclear systems. Nuclear is like the bad guy in the energy space because anytime it goes bad, I mean, it really, really goes bad. And so I would say, I would, I would say, I would say we'll get to 80, 85%. That's by combining um, mostly natural gas, uh, maybe with CCS. Let's see how hydrogen goes. Let's see what happens to nuclear in some other countries. America, much about Canada, but America is still, is still pushing for nuclear. Germany is pulled out from nuclear. Japan has pulled out from nuclear. Then we'll see how wind and solar take us. But too much wind and solar is also a problem for the grid. So that's it. So I, I feel we'll get close to 80%, but I don't think we'll get as close to 100% because... People talk about decarbonization as just electricity, but it's not just about electricity. You're talking about agriculture, um, industries, and stuff like that, um, transportation. 80% is actually a miracle, so I don't think we'll get to 100%. So. But it's good that we're working towards carbon neutrality, though. That's good. It's always a little bit discouraging to hear that all of these factors are working against us, but it's still a good goal to pursue to get as, fa- as, as close as we can, because that's really important. Well, that's about everything. Is there somewhere that people can find you if they want to learn more? You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter. You can message me and um, you could call me. I would love to talk. <laughs> but yes, it, it, uh, it's really a huge honor to, um, to join you. And uh, I'm really grateful for this opportunity, Avery. Yes, thank you so much for coming on and sharing everything you know about that sustainable development piece. It's a piece that doesn't get talked about very much. It's good to have someone come on and talk about what we need to do to make sure that we're not only focusing on the developed countries, but also the developing countries. I think that's really important. So thank you. I would once again like to thank Olaniyi for coming on. That was such a helpful conversation for me to understand the situation of developing countries especially. Nations who have less access to money, technology, and the expertise needed to run these operations definitely have a more difficult path to sustainability than those who do. But we must make sure that as these countries become more advanced, that they have adequate access to clean, renewable sources of energy as much as they possibly can. The bonus episode coming out this Friday will lay out the most important pieces of climate policies, both globally and in a few countries individually, so make sure to check that one out to get a general idea of where the global politics are on the topic of climate change. I know it's not why you usually listen to this show, but it's good to know where each country and the world as a whole stand on this issue right now. I will put links to Olaniyi's LinkedIn and Twitter in the show notes, 
I'm not exactly sure how you can call him, but if you can figure it out, I'm sure he would love to hear from you. I hope you learned as much from this conversation as I did. And I also hope that it highlighted the importance of providing these same opportunities to countries that aren't as developed. If you liked it or you learned something new, please share the show with one or two people close to you and see if you can get them to listen to an episode. If you want to support the show with your hard-earned money, you can go to patreon.com slash innovating a bright future and donate any amount you like. It's very much appreciated and it means a lot. Thank you for listening, stay innovative, and I'll see you next week.